picture it. On a cool February day in 1891, you walk out of your home and you pass a couple friends chatting about a new mystical board game. As you make your way into town, you buy a newspaper for six cents and a strange advertisement catches your eye. The words, Ouija, the magical talking board, pop off the page at you, promising a magical game to give you answers from the great beyond for a whole dollar and fifty cents. These days, the talking board, or rather, the Ouija board, strikes fear in every person who hears its name. But was it always the frightening portal to hell as we see it today? With it being such a popular staple in pop culture around the world, the history is as strange as a little wooden board itself. In today's episode, we divert from the literary world into the odd and strange history of the Ouija board. Let's dive into that. Welcome to Audibly Haunted. I'm your host, Ani Kachadorian. Booming out of many toy and novelty shops across the country came the world's most mysterious board game that stated it can give the users answers to their questions about the past, present, and future. It was the middleman to help reach out and link the living, the dead, and anything else that might be lurking just beyond the spiritual veil. Research shows that some of the original boards were actually made by a coffin maker. Maybe that's why spirits find themselves so attached to the board. This mystical talking board came about during a time in the Victorian era where death was a daily occurrence. People's grief had them reaching for any form of solace. The board came about at the perfect time as it hungrily fed the 19th century obsession with spiritualism. Spiritualism dug its claws deep into every home across America. Death in Victorian America was very commonplace as people would die from common colds, flus, or simply walking out of their homes. Grieving and mourning periods, especially for mothers, would last a year. Widows or widowers would mourn their loss for a two-year period. Deaths during this time came in twos or threes, and people found it hard to cope with the pain. Mothers would have 12 kids, yet six would die, turning their parlor room in their home into their personal funeral home. They were desperate and longing for a way to talk with and hear their loved ones once again. Mothers longed to know if their children were safe and okay, and spouses cried out for one last moment with their dearly departed. With death being so common during these days, religions became jaded. Priests and church became dismissive towards death. The people simply craved comfort from their loss. Here is where the interest in spiritualism was born. This vast interest and intrigue of the supernatural world took hold of people simply searching for answers. Women seemed to be the largest targets for spiritualistic marketing, feeding into women's emotional state. It was women who seemed to mourn the hardest, while men, 
men often seem to search for a scientific explanation to all the supernatural claims. With us bringing up the subject of spiritualism, we cannot talk about the era without naming one of the most influential families that surfaced out of that time. This family paved the way, both good and bad, for how the paranormal world is approached. This family was known as the Fox Sisters. Leah, Kate, and Maggie were the inventors of the If You Hear Me Knock Three Times question you hear every ghost hunter say. One night, sisters Maggie and Kate, who were 14 and 11, told their neighbor to come and experience a strange phenomena that happens in their room every night before bedtime. They stated they would hear strange, otherworldly knocks and bangs on the walls and on the furniture. The skeptical neighbor joined the girls in their room, and their mother Margaret began the demonstration. She would order the ghosts or spirits to count a certain number, and that command would be answered back with the same number of knocks or heavy thuds. She would ask, If you are an injured spirit, manifest it by three raps. And the ghosts would answer her. While it all seems so real, here's the kicker. This little show took place on March 31st, 1848, April Fool's Eve. But this little prank lost its footing and became something so much worse. After this demonstration, Fox sisters Maggie and Kate were sent to live with their sister Leah in Rochester, New York. This was a town so deep-rooted in reform and religious activity, community leaders Isaac and Amy Post became wildly intrigued. They speculated that the ghost they encountered must have been the peddler who was murdered in that home five years before. The posts invited the girls to perform their demonstration. This was when older sister Leah entered the play. The posts sat down and experienced the phenomena, and they truly believed that Leah was a real medium and was actually talking with their daughter who had passed. The posts were so convinced they rented the largest hall in Rochester and invited over 400 people to witness this amazing event. The Foxes became a household name and they grew in popularity overnight, especially after the Civil War. Mothers grieved and longed to hear their lost sons one last time. Their little game truly gave birth to the spiritualism movement. But as quickly as it began, the Fox sisters' ghost hoax came to an end. In 1888, after a feud between the sisters, a New York City reporter offered $1,500 to Maggie and Kate to expose their sister Leah. So, on October 21, 1888, in front of the New York City Academy of Music, Maggie demonstrated exactly how she can produce knocks and thuds on command, exposing the whole thing as a fraud.
Within the birth of spiritualism came the rise of mediums holding seances. With the current tactics of talking to the dead, people didn't want to wait for ghosts to take their time and guess where the knocks and thumps were coming from. They wished for a faster way to receive messages from the great beyond. Within the spiritual movement, this is where the Ouija board came into play. But just like any other company creating an item for sale, they were not scared of opening the gates of hell. Rather, they were more interested in opening America's wallets. So when it first started to circulate, the board was simply called the talking board. They needed a name for the board, but could not think of a name. They did the only thing they can think of. They just asked the board. Bit by bit, the board spelled out the word. O-U-I-J-A. Ouija. Which is a word meaning good luck. Ominous, isn't it? Yet it was still not enough. Still, people were skeptical of the board. The patent office stated that if they could not get the board to work, it wouldn't be patented and it could not be sold. The chief patent officer demanded to see the board in action. So as they all sat down, the session began and the board began to spell. Well, it began to spell the officer's name, which was unknown to any other who was a part of the session. On February 10th, 1891, a pale and visibly shaken patent officer emerged from the room and awards the patent to the new board game. Even though now it had a name and official patent, the board game still never gave a true description of what it does. It just simply stated it worked. I guess ambiguity and mystery were maybe just a smart marketing tactic. The Ouija board was a hit and many investors were brought in, but due to internal hardships to the Canard Novelty Company, the company was forced to sell it all to William Fold for only one dollar. Though sadly and sort of eerily, Fold ended up passing due to a freak accident falling from the roof of a building the Ouija board told him to build. So throughout the 1910s and 20s, the board blossomed, feeding America's fascination with the mystical, while also being oddly family-friendly. Though maybe not all thought it was a family-friendly game, Pope Plus X in 1919 warned Americans against owning the Ouija board, but not exactly for reasons you'd guess. Their reason was a man and a woman would be required to sit next to each other in a dark room, which I found pretty funny. Though two years after Parker Brothers bought the board from the Fold family in 1967, they moved production to Salem, Massachusetts. The board sold over two million copies, outselling Monopoly. As the years went on, so many tales began to surface, and each one more bizarre than the last. 
You had Mrs. Pearl Curran in 1916 who stated she spoke to a 17th century English woman through the Ouija board who dictated a series of poems and stories. The following year, Emily Grant Hutchings claimed that her book, Jap Heron, was communicated to her through the Ouija board by Mark Twain. In 1982, James Merle's epic Ouija-inspired poem, The Changing Light at Sandover, won the National Book Critics Circle Award, though he did later state that the board was more of a tool to enhance his own words rather than a direct line to the other side. Before, Ouija board was seen as a jokey, hokey, silly toy in television and in pop culture. It was depicted as a joke even in the 1951 episode of I Love Lucy titled The Seance. Lucy and Ethel hold a seance aimed to fool Ricky's theater manager because they feared Ricky's horoscope. The episode is full of silly antics and jokes as Lucy pretends to be a ghost from the great beyond, very, very far from what's depicted today. So when did it all change? Well, the Ouija board took a much more sinister persona once a little movie titled The Exorcist was released in 1973. It went from being this silly wooden board with numbers and letters to the devil's tool or doorway into our world. The movie was seemingly based off the true story of Roland Doe. Roland was a 14-year-old boy who, much like those in the Victorian era, longed to speak to someone who had died. Roland used the Ouija board and tried to communicate with his beloved aunt, who was an avid spiritualist who had recently passed on. After using the board, however, the family began to hear strange noises all around the house and objects would levitate when the boy was near. This first demonic possession made the evening news and the morning paper. A total of 48 people witnessed the boy's exorcism. Surviving the ordeal, Roland lived until he was 86. This new thought that talking to the other side can condemn you and ruin your life struck fear in people. Yet, while the fear is there in some, that fearful intrigue still remains in others. Of course, there is the world of science that sets out to prove that the Ouija board is not a mystical device controlled by the paranormal linking the living to the great beyond. Since 1853, experiments done by Michael Faraday found that the movement of the planchette was from a phenomenon called ideomotor effect. This is the automatic muscle movements without the person actually being aware that they're making the movements. This idea opened an avenue for scientists to study the mind in a new way. They believed that the board allows a kind of subconscious thinking to occur. The idea is that the brain has so many different levels. Sitting down at a Ouija board sends the brain into a subconscious thinking state, and that is what causes the movements to begin. That all sounds great, but 
If that's the cause, how does the board at times spell out information that neither participant knows? We can't possibly hold all of the answers in our subconscious. So, how does it work? Well, it takes two people to sit together with the board on a flat surface. They each set both of their hands, fingertips only, on the planchette. You light some candles, ask some questions, and make sure to say hello and goodbye. But there are also many rules on what not to do when playing. Like, never ask the board to predict death as it may predict your own death. Throwing the board away will never work. You have to burn the whole thing to get rid of any unwelcome spirits. It's also said that should the planchette move itself off of the board, you must turn it upside down to keep anything from coming out and attaching to you. And above all, never, ever play the game on your own. Blankets, pillows, clothes, phone cases, bed sheets, backpacks and purses, and so much more depict the famous hello, goodbye, and the iconic planchette. As Halloween moves in closer and closer, the Ouija board design makes its way more and more into pop culture all around us. It may be a cool design, yet most who wear it swear to never touch the actual board itself. Now, I remember my older brother coming home from a thrift store holding an original Ouija board in his hands, and it struck fear in me straight to my very bones. Then, after being used as a prop and pizza tray during my other brother's Halloween party, I said, the spirits aren't going to be happy about that. And after that day, to this day, I have never seen that board again. Like it just vanished. It might just be a wooden or even plastic board game you can buy at your local Target. I still feel it was a creation with a very unintentional power. There is an eeriness to the board and an ominous air around it. Is it really controlled by our own subconscious mind? Or is there something truly making contact through the board itself? I don't know what's scarier. The fact that a ghost might control the board? Or what truly lies within our subconscious minds? This has been Audibly Haunted. And I'm your host, Ani Kachidorian. You can find Audibly Haunted wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, you name it. Give it a listen, drop a rating, a review, and share with all your friends. And remember to send your ghost stories to audiblyhaunted at gmail.com to have them featured on the show.
Thank you for joining me, and I'll see you all next week.